Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Trish, can I share with you a little thing that happened in an exercise class I went to this week, which um, fascinated me and gave mm. me, well, it gave me the giggles and it also gave me quite a lot of joy, actually. It wasn't um, unpleasant sounds or smells, was it? No. Okay. <laughs> Nothing like that. Little, little Pilates class, pop along quietly. And the, in, the uh, what's she called? The trainer. The instructor. At the be- instructor. Yes. At the beginning, the instructor says, has anybody got any injuries I should know of? Mm-hmm. Let me know now and I can help you out. And this lady came up to her in front of the whole class and she said, I don't want to put my arms up in the air. I don't want to put my arms down low. And I don't really want to break out into too much of a sweat. Oh. <laughs> And I was just struck by the idea that you could say oh. at the beginning of an exercise class, these are the things I do yes. not want to do. I would like to leave halfway through and I'd oh like to take gosh. a phone call if I may. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it just opened up a whole world of just asking for what you want. I, know, I just I thought how it's, fabulous. It's just a bit of, I don't know, a bit of bespoke gone mad, isn't it? Bespoke class gone mad. And how, and how did this poor instructor respond? Did she manage to keep well, a straight she- face? she did keep a straight face mm. I was rather impressed and she was very understanding she said is it because of an injury and the lady said no <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to put my hand up and say oh. I can't do the splits is that okay <laughs> well, I want and to be able it? to do the splits so by the end of this class <laughs> was it just all core work then with no hands in the air like we well, don't care or did she just it's ignore sort her of, well you know what Pilates is yeah. very slow Trish oh, very slow yeah. and there is no breaking out in a sweat in Pilates just is think, there for God's what? sake take responsibility for yourself you know don't inflict it on everybody else but imagine being able to ask for what you want in such a forthright manner in front of a whole class of people I think that's brilliant mm, you see that's that's the difference between you and me it is <laughs> Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Now, before we kick off the show today, Trish, I'm going to ask you how your exam's going. <laughs> because My exams, uh, yes, they might as well be. Yes, mine are a little stressful, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, my eldest is doing exams at uni and my 18-year-old has started her A-levels. The house is full of what I call teenshun uh, as opposed <laughs> yes. to tension. I made a cup of tea yesterday and it was the wrong colour and there was some kind of hulk-like response to it and I've mostly been hiding in the car in the garden this week I think that's probably sensible tactics yes we've gone into don't speak to me mode we've got a bit of don't ask me don't tell me anything so of course I've got a pair of them uh, both doing their twin, A-levels twin A-levels twin A-levels thankfully one of them's done two course-based subjects so they only have one set but the other one was very much don't look at me when I come back don't speak to me don't ask me but actually it came back incredibly jolly because it had gone well so but we've just been focusing on being incredibly prepared or as in making sure they've got the travel card the night before because we yes. one of those got lost last week and it was a disaster yeah. so disaster prevention I would say mainly and not speaking but I suppose we just have to be patient really until it's all over because apparently there are going to be 700,000 A-levels awarded this year so it's good to know we're not alone as we navigate <laughs> this part of the parenting journey. Well, I have been through it once before with the A-levels mm-hmm. and I think sort of being patient, yes, is the only way. You have to sort of hold your tongue and tread carefully. I've got to go through it twice more, mm. Trish. So um, by the time my 11-year-old gets to her exams, I'm going to be like Buddha. I'm going to be that patient. You are. That's that's in about seven years. But I, I kind of was thinking you might be more like Yoda in your wiseness oh, yes. and slightly small and shriveled, do you think? A bit green. <laughs> Raised and like. Yes. Thanks for that, Trish. Um <laughs> 
I did talk to quite a few adolescent mental health experts when I was writing the book on parenting teens, and they said the key, should anyone want to know, is to be, well, just to be there and to be Mm. as unobtrusive as possible unless they ask you, and that's kind of ninja parenting. There is a new book out, Dr. Tara Porter's book called You Don't Know Me, which is pretty good on how to help teens relax around their grades and, Mm -hmm. you know, to help them avoid this kind of achievement um, mindset. And also one of mine is using something called the Flora app, which is really sweet. So it's an app that you revise with and then blocks out everything else so you don't get any notifications. But every time you achieve a certain goal, you plant a little flower in your garden and you do it with all your friends and then you compare gardens. And then every morning I'll say to her, how's your garden looking today? So this is a little touch point that we have. Obviously, if you asked her if to go into the actual garden, she'd batter me with a calculator, but she likes this little revision oh, game. It's... Just don't remember it being this no, stressful. It's very different for us. I mean, I think about I, I think because my parents weren't really that involved at all, just weren't we just interested got on with even. it, did we? We just never <laughs> interested. interested. I was given over the dining room to do my revision and spread out my books because obviously back in those days you probably lived in a house we had a very small kitchen you had a little dining room and I have to say the whenever I see a kind of lace lacy tablecloth now I just have I have Hamlet quotes going through my head I just can't help myself but yeah I think it was different I was talking to Neil about this actually we didn't even have the pressure within the schools to do that well it was just I think my school wasn't a kind of university feeder yeah. school so it was kind of I don't know what about yours probably was similar I no, expect it was a comprehensive it had yeah. um really the next step was you went to work basically that was that was the next step mm. and I was advised by my careers teacher that I'd probably be quite good working in an old people's home given my lack of <laughs> academic I mean there would be sort of pandemic levels of death in oh. people's home if I was working on Imagine yeah, I mean, how I'd be absolutely useless at it. How your but, life um, could have turned out if you'd worked in an old people's home well, in world. Which would different. be, I'm sure some people would be brilliant yes, at it, but it would but not, not be something you. I would have been brilliant at. No, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we will look back on all of this with humour and discuss it over Christmas lunch with our grandchildren one of these days when we're what? small and Yoda-like. I do love the thought of grandchildren, Trish, mm. because you know, you know, I'm baby mad. Absolutely <laughs> baby mad. I can't <laughs> wait. In fact, our show today is very family orientated, isn't it? Yes, it is, because we have a really fascinating guest. Uh, Miriam Tabes is an award winning Canadian author whose novels revolve around families, in fact, and how they interact. She's got quite an exceptional personal story to tell. And I think listeners will learn a lot about family relationships and in particular how trauma affects families. Yes, I was really excited when she said yes to coming on the show because her life has been really different from anyone else we've Mm. ever had on the podcast, actually. She's in her 50s. She lives with her mum, her daughter, her son-in-law and her grandchildren and her partner. And she grew up in the religious group, the Mennonites, um, which she ran away from when she was 18. There's been a lot of loss and heartbreak in her family, but her books are seriously funny. Mm. I mean, I can't imagine being able to live through all that she has lived through and write well, they laugh out loud. Novels, oh, they are. They? they really are. And it's such a privilege, isn't it, that we get to interview wonderful women like these on the podcast. And I hope all of you listeners will be able to take something away from the show today, which will be helpful for you. Being helpful is what we're here for, isn't it, Trish? And on that mm. note, can I draw your attention to our private Facebook group list of mid-morning snacks? Have you seen oh, yes, this? I did see that. I'm very excited about it because, you know, I like a Cadbury fruit and nut mm. and an after eight mint, which, of course, and a hobnob. Yeah, they're just not very good for you, are they? What's your favourite snack? Um, I'm going to be really controversial. You know what I'm going to say? Apple or something. I don't snack. I'm not a snacker. Silly. Well, With a dark chocolate in the afternoon, but no snacks for me. <laughs> I know well, you you're an anomaly. Anyway, I'm going to direct yes. everyone to that thread if you're yes. in the market for a new snack. I particularly liked the blackberries and cream. <laughs> it's quite a good snack, Black isn't it? Blackberries and cream? Mm, that's pudding. <laughs> that's pudding to you. Yes. <laughs> and obviously the main theme is if you eat proper breakfast, eggs and the like, we'll all be like you, Trish. We won't snack. No, no snacking, no snacking distraction, but enough snack chat. In fact, it's time to get on with the show. We're going to be kicking off Postcards from Life with a Cult Club book special. This is all about books today. 
today we have got three books each for our culture club book special that we're going to recommend and they roughly fit into sort of three categories a novel for your summer holiday a book for your midlife mindset and a book that may make a good gift or tweak your thinking in some way so i'm going to kick off with a giant name drop fish because i know <laughs> surprise, you have missed surprise my name drops let me get the book no, in front sure. of we've me few, we've had a few um, this series already off you go here surprise i go us. This book is Go Gently by Bonnie Wright. Do you remember Ginny Weasley, Weasley in Harry Potter? And may I just mention, I know the lovely Bonnie because oh. very oddly, when I used to edit L, we used to have something called the Run Club and we used to do a lot of small, short 5K, mm-hmm. 10K runs. And um, this lovely couple came up to me at one of our runs in Victoria Park and said, could our daughter run with you? Because um, she's sort of here on her own and she's just started running. She'd like to run mm-hmm. and she's a big fan of Elle she's a big leader and they brought um Ginny Weasley over to run with Ginny us Weasley. was she Ginny <laughs> um, Weasley at the time of course she was no I think she'd, she'd finished I obviously finished oh, this, yeah. about, this must have been about five years ago oh, yes okay. so she's yeah um went to LA and she's written this really lovely book and it's actionable steps to nurture yourself and the planet and what I like about it as I like the title go gently is that it's really simple things mm. and it's all about you know because you can get so overwhelmed with with climate mm-hmm. change and everything that's happening and I think it's nice to read what a young person much younger Mm -hmm. person is thinking and who they're looking to for advice and also this idea that just do the bits that you can do that affect you that you're passionate about and that matter to you so it is kind of recipes it's how to make your home a little bit more eco-friendly and you what to read and where to read and it really kind of opened my eyes to new names because I think if we're of our age we keep looking to the same experts and we're Mm. a bit of a a bubble and echo chamber Um, and it's all about little small steps and it's really beautifully produced so I thought that would be a nice oh. present um, and go and gently by Bonnie Wright the credentials here is this what she does now is this her thing yes yes she works yeah. with Greenpeace so oh, amazing. Um, well, yeah really she's really good, absolutely it? immersed and that was the other thing I really liked is that she what, what Bonnie's gone off and done is is really properly immersed herself um in this mm-hmm. and she's kind of used her fame because they are so famous, aren't yes, they, the Harry Potter yes. cast? And she's used her fame to provide a toolkit, which is really mm. helpful for her generation and, and other generations around her. And I thought it was a really impressive thing to yes. do, actually. Excellent. Excellent. So my tweak your thinking, if that's where we are, um, yeah. is uh, called Wired for Love, a neuroscientist's journey through romance, loss wow. and the essence of human connection which is a bit of a mouthful. It's by Stephanie Cacioppo, and she's a psychiatrist and behavioral neuroscientist at the University of Chicago. But it's essentially a love story, and it's kind of the the story of her science and the research, and then the science behind her story, her love story. So she was actually 36 and publishing papers on romantic love and all of this kind of thing. She'd never been in love herself. She just assumed it was never gonna happen to her. It was too late. But then she goes off to some academic conference and meets this guy called John, who is an academic and an expert on um, the dangers of loneliness to physical and mental wellbeing. And hey ho, they get together and um, become this incredible pair and have this amazing love story. They have a spur of the moment wedding in in Paris and then she starts writing a a column called Modern Love in the New York Times so it was really psychosy and then it isn't a spoiler because it's very much part of the 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 story from the start he dies of cancer in 2018 but she just has so many fascinating insights about love from the brain's perspective and how love can stay with us love and loss and grief and just how important it is to kind of our cognitive and biological kind of necessity so I thought that was really interesting there's also quite a lot in there about the snobbery and sexism she experienced in wanting to study what was seen as a kind of really soft soft subject but actually is this kind of you know acute biological need and um, she concludes that love is the opposite of loneliness so him and his loneliness and her and her love together and yeah it was really a really good book I would recommend that one what about you a bit of a summary take me away somewhere well I'm going to take you away with one of the um, shortlisted books from the Women's Prize mm-hmm. Fiction which we've talked about because I'm judging and we're going to announce the winner of the Women's Prize in uh, two weeks time June the 13th I think it is so Elif Shafak the island of missing trees I know you're a fan um, mm-hmm. of Elif's writing I think it's just the loveliest um, summer read it was shortlisted for the Costa novel award as well it's about two teenagers a Greek Cypriot Turkish Cypriot they meet in a taverna on the island they both call home and then it's really the story of their life when they're separated 
Mm-hmm. And she goes, comes to London with her parents, and there's a little bit of tragedy. Um, but it's all witnessed by the fig tree. Um, and part of the story, I'd say a third of the story, is told by the fig tree. And it also tells the story of the insects around the fig tree. It's really, mm. it's one of the most extraordinary books I've ever read because it's such a different way of writing a book. It's, a, it's, it's historical as well because it's about the war. Mm. It's about teenage love lasting love it's about a young woman growing up in London it's about secrets and silence it's just really lovely it's one of those that you'd start sort of on the plane on your Mm. holiday and then you would be desperate to get to it on your sun lounger Mm -hmm. I'm definitely putting that on my list then so I'm taking you away not abroad but back in time because you do you know I love my historical uh, sort of uh, novels and dramas and fiction and this one is set in the early 1900s in England and it's called the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams he's actually an Australian writer but it's very much an English-based book and it tells the story of these people who are compiling the Oxford English Dictionary and it's told through this uh, character called Esme which is my daughter name and she's the daughter of one of the men working on it and it's kind of about her interactions with the characters based on the real people behind the book but um basically she collects words that fall off this table like they write all these words on scraps of paper and then they discard some she kind of collects them these are words that are in in use in english language in society at this time but they kind of get disregarded and then she writes her own manuscript because a lot of them of course they're women's words words to do with women and associated with women Who that are them? discarded Who at this time words? it's very much a kind of an exploration about do words mean different things to men and women and then there's you know she gets involved with the suffragettes so there's a lot of, of a lot of interesting stuff in there which I really liked and I thought I'd just point out to you that you know you were mentioning about the fact that men don't read books written by women or they don't. not enough there was also I read a thing recently that there are uh, and it's all done through AI at this university in America there are four times as many male characters in literature than female characters <laughs> would you believe and it's part of this study called God. the Gutenberg project and um, they it was also able to analyze words associated with these female characters and of course they were you know coming up with things like weak amiable and pretty and of course the words associated with men you can guess with things like leadership power strength do you say these things just to make me angry trish with the patriarchy again yes that's true but anyway i thought that was interesting and i like the idea of the dictionary of lost words bringing things back round to where they should be good with these words right My, my final book for you Mm-hmm. It's our midlife recommendation, and it's out on June the 16th. Now, do you remember we had Christy Watson on I the do. show? Lovely, Christy. We had her on in us. November, didn't we? 2020. I thought it was mm-hmm. last year, but it was actually the year before. So Christy is a nurse, and she's written two best-selling books about nursing, really about nursing because they were dying as yeah. well. They're quite extraordinary books. Um, and she came on and talked about that and what she'd learned from that. But she has now written, she's in her late 40s, Quilt on Fire, The Messy Magic of Midlife which is her it's her very personal memoir so she's a single mum so she's it's about being a single mum um dating having her teenage daughter living at home and what I liked about it there's a really brilliant line the exhilaration of being a middle-aged woman with a wild heart she has got a really wild heart Christy Mm -hmm. Watson (laughs) she's Mm -hmm. very entertaining it's kind of laugh out loud funny it starts with her being really hungover and it just talks its way through all the things she encounters while at the same time, because obviously she went back into nursing, but while at the same time being perimenopausal. Oh, yes. So it really is a book where if you think you are going through all of this alone, that the brain fog is entirely, you know, brain tumour, as I thought mine was, oh. um, this book will make you feel less alone and oh, it will also make you laugh. Make out loud. you laugh. That's um, what we need. Yeah. That's and I'm interviewing life. her actually for Fame Productions for the book when it comes out. And I think oh, that brilliant. recording goes uh, live after June the 16th, so you'll be able to watch it. Amazing. Good for you. That's a good one. Right. Now, my midlife mindset, it's not necessarily an easy read, but I think it's a really important one and a, a timely one. And it's called Nonfiction by Julie Myerson. And I'm sure most of yes. us will be familiar with Julie. And I just remember, you know, when I became an editor many, many years ago, she was the writer that you wanted to get right. Yeah. She wrote these incredible books. 
And, you know, she was always one of these women that you just thought she's so talented. She's got this gorgeous family. You just think that she's leading a charmed life. But that obviously wasn't to be the case. And the theme of this book is actually about teenage drug addiction. And this is obviously something Julie went through herself in 2009. She wrote about her eldest son, Jake's increasingly heavy use of skunk marijuana and the decision she and her husband took to kick him out of the family home and there was a big furore wasn't there and yeah. actually well he sold his story didn't he I think to yeah, the papers it exactly. was really sad to hear yeah. all of that it out, was out very sad and we don't know what's happened since then because she wrote a book about that experience again fictionalized in 2016 but we haven't heard from her since and so this is fictional but based on these themes and it's about a mother and a daughter and the daughter who has a drug addiction and I think given what we know about what girls are suffering at the moment, yeah. particularly crisis of mental health. Yeah, is, and yeah, then the our people. kind of how we feel about ourselves as our capability as mothers. All of that is in there. So it's not these. It's not going to be an easy read, but it's a beautiful read and probably a very important read. So thank you everyone for listening to our book themed culture club. We're going to put all the books that we recommend on our Facebook page. Um, it'd be great to know what you're all reading, listeners as well. You can comment on the Facebook post or you can email us your thoughts at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's book club episode, our special guest is the best-selling Canadian writer Miriam Taves, whose award-winning novels include A Complicated Kindness, All My Puny Sorrows and Women Talking, which is currently being made into a film starring Rooney Mara, Frances McDormand and Claire Foy. Miriam's narratives are frequently framed by her experiences being brought up in a Mennonite community and centre on the perspectives of strong women who have suffered much but are determined to persevere. Her new novel, Fight Night, takes the form of a nine-year-old's letter to her absent father detailing her home life where she lives with her irrepressible grandmother, Elvira, and her pregnant mother, Mushi, who struggles with mental health issues. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Miriam. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So you're joining us, we can see from your home in Toronto, and Mm -hmm. we are fascinated by this idea that you live with your partner, your mother, your daughter, your grandchildren. I mean, for most of us, I have to be honest, the idea of living with extended family would not be ideal how do you make it work well it kind of came about out of out of necessity so my partner and I are in this laneway house that we just had built mm-hmm. here this tiny tiny little house which I, I'm in right now and just um you know on the same property is the larger house and my mother is on the main floor where mm-hmm. she has been for the last 10 years and then my daughter and her partner and two kids are on the second floor sort of squished on the second floor oh, <laughs> and it's been fantastic you know we can all care for each other. My mother who has health issues, it's just really great that, that, you know, my daughter and and her family are there to help. I can babysit. But I think what's really important is um, just having sort of, you know, established boundaries. (laughs) And and, uh, we all have our own space. Your mum's 90, isn't she? 
No, she's only 86. <laughs> oh, she's 86. Well, well that's pretty amazing anyway. <laughs> and Steve, how does it work on a day-to-day basis then? I'm absolutely fascinated because I'm struggling living with the, the three teenagers and a 10-year-old at the moment. So do you have meals together and how does it work? <laughs> I hear you. Um, we, we do off and on. So, so my mother has dinner sometimes with my daughter. And then on three nights of the week, three or four nights of the week, she, she'll come here and have dinner with Eric and I. Georgia, my daughter, does most of the grocery shopping for my mother as she's doing Sounds her idyllic. <laughs> it, it is. It really, really, really is. Two of my grandchildren are here, my daughter's kids, and they're three uh, almost four and one, almost one, almost four, mm. almost one. And so, you know, they can just sort of like toddle back and forth. You That's know. adorable. Yeah. So we're here to talk about Fight Night, your latest book, which is about intergenerational living and, and you know, a lot mm-hmm. of stories of women and women's lives. Really also part of your story for British listeners who, who may not know them, the huge background to where you're from is growing up in the Mennonite community. Just mm-hmm. for our listeners, can you explain what a Mennonite community is? Because it's not something that we come across very often here. There are different types of Mennonite communities. And so I grew up in a conservative Mennonite community, the first Mennonite settlements, or at least one of the first here in, in Canada. You know, there are different ways of being Mennonite. There's a Mennonite um, community here in Toronto. My mother is a member of a Mennonite church here, which is a liberal, open-minded Mennonite church, unlike the the type of Mennonite church that she attended, that I attended as a kid in our hometown, which was very conservative, fundamentalist. So the Mennonites are basically a group that were formed um, under the leadership of Menno Simons, a guy in the 1500s in Holland, kind of broke away from the Catholic church to do their own thing, you know, all over the world. And so there are very, very ultra-conservative Mennonite communities that are remote, that are isolated, that I've written about in other books, often in South America and Central America, places like that. And then there are, I guess, more urban, more um, modern Mennonite communities all over the world. It's a very patriarchal society, though, when you say conservative. Traditionally, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. How does it influence Fight Night, your latest book? What is where do we see it in that novel? So the characters, particularly Grandma and Mushi, Swiv's mom, grew up in a very traditional conservative Mennonite community, as I did. And they're sort of fighting that as they do all of their lives, the impact of that, the effects of that. And particularly in the book, at least there's um, a Mennonite elder pastor from the community who continues to sort of harass them, essentially, you know, uh, uh, trying to get them to come back into the fold, um, renounce their modern secular <laughs> lives. So they, they make a lot of jokes about this guy. And Swiv sort of sees all of this. She, she's grown up differently in the city. I mean, it's hard not to fall in love with these three women. We have grandmother Elvira Swift, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the nine-year-old, and you know, you feel this enormous empathy for Mushi, the pregnant mother as well. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about each of them mm-hmm. before you read us a little extract, please? Yeah, well, well, Grandma definitely, I think, is the central character. Swift's the narrator. She's nine years old, and she and she's writing basically about her life. She's writing to her father, who's gone, who's disappeared, he's taken off. And she's writing about her life with her, with her mother and with her grandmother. So Grandma is, um, you know, feisty, the, the matriarch, independent, outspoken spoken and is attempting to homeschool Swiv. Swiv's been kicked out of school for fighting. So grandma and Swiv spend an awful lot of time together teaching each other in a, <laughs> in a way and uh, grandma being acutely aware of Swiv's anxiety. She's an anxious kid. You know, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of tough stuff going on in, in her life. Mushi is the mother. She is an actress. She's always gone. She's mostly gone. She's at rehearsals. She's also anxious. She's suffering, you could say, from a type of mental illness or or anxiety, depression, whatever it is, but still, you know, trying to keep things together, trying to work, trying to make a living, take care of her older mother. And again, Swiv is, is, is observing and documenting it. The, the extract that we thought it would be lovely for you to read comes quite early on in the book. And it's basically a kind of a description of you get their personalities, but also some of the domestic arrangements that go yeah. on in this way of living, which we thought would be nice to hear from you. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So this is just sort of the beginning of the book. Swiv is describing the situation. Grandma likes to tell 
tell mom we've accomplished household tasks every day because mom is having a complete nervous breakdown and a geriatric pregnancy, which doesn't mean she's going to push an old geezer out of her vag. It means she's too old to be up the stump and is so exhausted. And when she comes home from rehearsal, she's all, God, what a mess. God, you guys, what a dump. You can't pour fat down the drain. These pipes are ancient. You can't overload the toilet with toilet paper. Why are there conchiglietis everywhere? Can't you two pick up a dish or put the shit away? Or have you ever even heard of household tasks? Mom's latest domestic freakout is that she always has to put all the food that's in the fridge at the very outer edges of the rack so that it's entirely visible to grandma. Otherwise, grandma thinks there's no food because she can't see it. And she doesn't move things around to see the food in the back of the fridge. And then she orders takeout or just eats ice cream or bacon or handfuls of cereal from the box. So now mom lines everything up in a row on the outer edges of the fridge racks with labels like, this is lentil, eat it. This is kale salad, eat it. Grandma doesn't eat anything green, not a single thing, ever. It's like Samson in his hair. He can't cut it or he'll lose his strength. Grandma can't eat green things. She can detect green things in her food when mom tries to hide them in there. I'm not going to spend my last five minutes on earth eating rabbit food. It's so well done. It's such a, it's such a lovely read, but it's such a funny read. But a lot of it tackles, as your books do, some really heavy, um, weighty subjects, some quite distressing moments in people's lives. There is the suicide of Elvira's other daughter. There is a lot of tragedy and loss in this book. And you've been through that yourself, for our listeners to know, through the depression and suicide of your father and your sister. I'm intrigued to know if writing helps with that or whether Mm. it's cathartic or whether it's actually really painful and what we can learn from that. Uh, I think all of those things. I mean, it is, it's a type of pain. The pain, you know, from the the grief, the loss, the tragedy is something that, and I'm sure you know, and and people listening to this know that it doesn't ever, um, you know, go away. There's no such thing as closure. You just sort of carry it. And as you get older, you know, you're carrying more and more of it along with all the other things as well. So I think the writing is just a way of shaping up from that, of making sense of it, controlling it in a sense, owning it and trying to make something artful, something that resonates, something that will connect me to other people. So taking it in and you know trying just basically trying to make that connection so for that reason it is cathartic on the other hand um there's always something more you know there's always another angle there's always something just just as soon as I've finished writing a book and I've you know and I feel like okay you know I've managed to wrestle some of this stuff onto the page and I've created this thing where I can put some of my own pain (laughs) you know anxiety (laughs) into as soon as you're finished the ink has barely dried (laughs) and it's there again so I think compulsion to write I have to keep writing, you know. Pain, and then there's also with with Swiv, who obviously is nine. She, she certainly seems very wise beyond her years, and it, but she's living in the shadow of her mother's mental health issues and the potential loss of her beloved ailing grandmother, which mm-hmm. is a, a huge amount for a child to deal with. But we know, certainly here in the UK, you know, children are living with increasing amounts of mental illnesses within their family, especially since the pandemic or, you know, living with a parent who has um, who has issues. It's increasingly common. And what what do you think that listeners could learn from how Mm -hmm. Swift is helped through this by Mm -hmm. her mom and her grandma? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's so true. I think that talking about it more more people are talking about mental Mm -hmm. illness and the realities of it there's uh less reluctance to talk about it to get help but the system itself is still almost impenetrable in terms of Mm -hmm. of accessing that help you know I think people are people are talking about it the people suffering from it are talking about it families are talking about it we're we're talking about how it's affecting us to have a support group especially like you say for kids who are basically responsible kids teenagers who are suffering themselves possibly and then having to you know take care of in a sense like Swift you know take care of other generations or at least be living with them and, and observe it all. If it's a subject that is swept under the rug and not addressed, then these kids will obviously feel possibly ashamed. Oh, you know, my, my mom's crazy or mm-hmm. I'm crazy or I feel depressed or I feel suicidal. All of these things that seem impossible to, to say out, out loud. Have you talked about the mental illness in your family with your children? How did you bring that into the family conversation? Because there is a huge body of thinking in psychology, isn't there, that we pass pain and trauma mm-hmm. through families and unless you deal with it or talk Mm -hmm. about it out loud it just becomes an imprint on the next generation have you 
you been open mm-hmm. and honest about it, given what happened to your sister and your dad? I feel so. Yes, um, absolutely. And it is. I mean, you're you're right. You know, it is something that I think is inherited, and and it's terrifying. You know, for those of us who have experienced this with, you know, ourselves or our loved ones, constantly on guard, constantly looking for those or even seeing them, imagining them, you know, those those symptoms, those signs, you know, are you okay? What's going on? Is this just a, a bad mood or is this just a, a low day? Are you just blue? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. are you just feeling yeah. is this the beginning of something else? I think, you know, all, all of those things are um yeah, it becomes a big deal. And so bells go go off and you and you start thinking, oh no, you know, this is this is going to end badly. Um, and I think it's really, really important to talk about it for me with my kids, with my mother, with and eventually with my grandchildren. We can know the difference between a hard day and um and clinical depression yeah. <laughs> for mm-hmm. you know, for instance, you know, on the other hand too i mean there is because the fear is so real and we understand that this can happen you know you can become very depressed and you can kill yourself this this has happened in our family and it's happened several times and so i think that the, then also the tendency is to maybe not talk about it because it's such a big subject yeah exactly so it's sort of like there's this profound need to talk about it and to constantly sort of be aware of it and to touch base with each other, you know, and then on the other hand, there's a tendency to push it away. You are using humor really well around <laughs> it as well. Is that one of the things you found that kind of, I mean, some of the books, are very, some of the lines are very laugh out loud funny, but actually very sad as well. Is that something, mm-hmm. something that you found is a really good tool in this circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I guess the, that that's the use of humor is, is something that I've, I've, I've always written that way in a sense, um, more or less. It's a survival tool. It's a, you know, mechanism <laughs> and armor mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I think with Swiv and Fight Night, you can very easily see right through that her humor often is a form of uh, bravado, you know, a way to strengthen her herself and, and keep herself going. And she also sees that tradition set mm-hmm. too by her grandmother, by her mother to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Now, know. despite the tragedy that uh, Elvira has experienced and the hard knock, she has this incredible zest for life. She laughs out loud. She's enthralled with adventure right through into her 80s. Um, can we assume that you have a really positive outlook on aging? You know, in all honesty, I would like to say Yes, mm-hmm. I would. And I think to a certain degree, I do have a positive outlook. Certainly, Elvira has a positive outlook. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who is more um, life loving, more resilient, more, mm-hmm. you know, em- embracing and with connection, human connection. I mean, that's who she is. And, you know, my, I'm also my father's daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, my mother is, cer- is certainly, you know, my, my role model. Absolutely. Because her name Absolutely. is, her name is Elvira, we should point out. Isn't <laughs> yeah. Your her mother's name is name Elvira. Is Elvira. <laughs> yeah. So there's no coincidence going there's on no, here. There, no, there's no coincidence. <laughs> and I had wanted to write about her. I'm getting there. I'm learning a lot from her. I'm, I'm happy that I'm getting older. <laughs> So you're you're in your 50s now. Tell us about your 40s. My 40s, Trisha's 40s, a bit of a shock for us. Yeah. <laughs> the perimenopause was a bit of a shock for us. We just so Absolutely. much we didn't know about. How were your 40s and how were your 50s? You know, my husband and I divorced in my 40s. That was painful and prolonged and horrible for everybody. <laughs> that was very, very difficult. After the divorce, I moved with my daughter from Winnipeg to Toronto. My sister died. My sister killed herself. And my mother then moved. That's, you know, when I said we're all living together at a necessity, mm-hmm. we realized, you know, we really do need to be together really in a circle of wagons at this point. And she moved to Toronto to be with me. And, and so it was just hu- huge life changes. Yeah. And, and then in addition, menopause and work, my career or whatever you want to call it, our so-called career, you know, there seemed to be so many other more pressing things going on. My forties was a time of great upheaval. Also, also of questioning myself, of being, you know, anxious about my place in the, like who I was, you know, strangely enough, even though, I mean, that seems to be the domain of adolescence. And yet there I was in my forties thinking, you know, mm-hmm. who am I? What am I doing? What do I need to do with my life? And that has changed now in my, in my fifties and maybe just re- just recently feel a sense of calm. I don't have burning questions. I don't have any more, whether I, I'm sure that I haven't figured out, I haven't come up with answers to the questions or anything like that. They're just not 
not pressing in on my brain anymore. It's, I think I'm a, I'm a calmer person. Mm -hmm. I understand that I'm trying to be here for my family and to help and to love properly and to care for and to spend time with my grandchildren. And that seems to me right now in my life to be really enough. If did I have you, a little bit of time to do my, you know, my writing, that's also that's kind on of the side. Yeah. <laughs> did you, we got a lot of listeners in Canada, mm -hmm. actually, what is the attitude to menopause and perimenopause? So in this country in the last year, well, maybe 18 months, it's suddenly become talked about. There have been two big TV documentaries about it. There's been about four books out. Um, and the word perimenopause hadn't even been heard until about 18 months ago. So there's a kind of groundswell of women's voices at the moment mm -hmm. here. Is it the same in Canada, do you think, or not? I'm not sure about that. Certainly, I mean, my friends and I, friends of friends of mine who are the same age, I mean, we talk about it. We talk about what we're what we're going through, what we're experiencing. Similar, similar to me mental illness, you know, and the subject of, yeah. of suicide, for instance. I mean, it's not as grave, but it is a subject that affects us. And, it, and it, men, you know, and women here in Canada are becoming a little bit more open to it, understanding that, oh, this is a real thing that women go through, you know, and it's not easy. Well, the peak age for suicide in the UK is 45 to 49. So there is a direct correlation, they think, between because obviously um, lack of estrogen causes all sorts of changes in the brain. So, yeah, it's all beginning yeah. to be talked about a little mm -hmm. bit, isn't yeah. it? And that's fascinating, too, you know, yeah. and the, the hormonal changes, too, and chemistry and, and all of that. And I, reading a lot yeah. about suicide, as I do, I think often menopause, and we joke about it a lot, don't mm -hmm. we? Yeah. You, you know, the to our detriment. Yeah. yeah, because certainly, I mean, having gone through it and continuing to, it changes you. It's not always easy. We should talk about your 2018 book, Women Talking, because it's currently in production in Hollywood. I mean, what a stellar cast. We mentioned some of them in our introduction to you, Miriam, but we forgot to mention two Brits, Jesse Buckley and Ben Whishaw as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how amazing. But it is based amazing. on a very harrowing true story, isn't it, within a, a Mennonite colony in Bolivia. Can you just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, the book Women Talking is an imagined response to these attacks, these rapes that occurred starting, I think, to 2005, 2009, 2011. The reality is that these types of attacks are not necessarily specifically these types of attacks, but, you know, rape and, and domestic violence and assaults have been going on forever and continue to within these ultra conservative, isolated, fundamentalist, um, self policed mm. colonies, these communities. And so, and the, and the women who, the, this is a Mennonite colony, are waking up um, at re realizing that they had been attacked. They were um, bleeding, they were in pain. And they started talking about what had been happening to them. They weren't believed by the elders in the community. They were told, "Is your what wild female imagination, mm -hmm. and um, or the or the or the work of the devil? You're being punished they'd been for something." Drugged, hadn't they? They'd been drugged and, the, and then raped. Yeah. yeah, there was a spray that um, that the attackers were were using to knock them out, knock the entire family out, go into the house, rape the women and the girls, and and some of the um, boys and men were all assaulted in these communities eventually it was one or two of the women who caught one of the attackers coming in through through the window and then the whole you know story came out so men were convicted weren't they they were and men there were seven or eight men right. but they did bring in the police these are self-police communities essentially what the elders of the community had wanted to do was simply say okay simply isolate the men in fact they kept yeah. them in a kind of shed hoping that that would solve the problem but you know eventually the police did come it was investigated these men were taken to the city um, put on trial convicted and um, and are still in prison as far as I know so your, your book is the women talking about what happened isn't it? it's the most extraordinary story so the book the book is like I said you know an imagined response to these attacks getting together in a loft, in a, in a barn hayloft, and um, to talk about what they're going to do. And they have a, you mm. know, kind of short, short window when the, the men are in the city attempting to get the attackers home, get them out on bail, for instance. And so, so they have a short window and they have to figure out what they're going to do, whether they're going to stay. And do you have um, input into the film and how it's written and the script and everything? Will you be on the set? Sarah Pauly, who, who wrote the, uh, the screenplay, she's the director as well. Yeah. And um, she and I talked a lot 
list, you showed me drafts and, you know, so I had a little bit of input and um, I was on the set. I, I was able to visit set. I met this incredible yeah. cast. I met these, these actors, <laughs> which was very exciting. And I think it's due to be out um, later this year. So whether that's in the U.S., North America rather and UK but we'll keep people posted on that because we're very very excited about it. Now we'd love to know a little bit about some of the writers and books that have had the most impact on you throughout your life as well mm -hmm. so maybe you might just share a few of those. There have just been so many Virginia Woolf, Ellis Monroe here and mm. well, my sister was six years older than me and uh, and you know I had started university at a, at eight, 18 I was I was 12 and she had a, a, a bookshelf that I was absolutely not supposed to touch or go <laughs> to or not even be in it I would you know she was off of university and I would go and go through all these books and the dirty parts and, and everything but eventually, <laughs> I would, eventually I would eventually I would mm. read them all Joy Williams Marilyn Robinson, I mean, Ferrante and, you know, female, female writers along the way that have had such a powerful effect on me. Natalia Ginsburg, for instance, just now, actually, I'm, re I'm reading a book by Celia Paul. British artist called Letters to Gwen John. Who oh, yes. Was, mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. Gwen John has died, of course, but she's writing to these letters to her ostensibly and um, talking about the, the parallels between their lives, you know, being the, the muses essentially or the models for these great artists, Rodin and Lucien Freud, and eventually moving out of that to become artists themselves. And, um, um, solitary artists you know and then just that that idea of of you know that that need for solitude I guess I'm really feeling that here in my compound with all it <laughs> your compound it's, a, it's really yeah it's really appealing to me on that level you know? like, yeah you know we can we can ask for this we can we can we can insist on this we can oh. you know as artists Have it in your we, head we can, yeah it, yeah we can respect this you know we need this this solitude this solitary time and I'm also reading Christian Wyman, an American poet. He just writes so beautifully and about faith and mm -hmm. about art and its intersection and about struggle. And it's so inspiring, the futility that we all feel mm -hmm. so often, you know, in terms of our art, but also life itself. You know, why are we doing this? What's the point? And, uh, and I just find it very uh, edifying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, that's a Chris, wonderful, Wyman. A wonderful <laughs> list for us. And are you writing something at the moment? Well, I'm trying to, but but again, all all these people. Are... <laughs> yeah, it's, not, it's not possible to write anything with all the people, is it? <laughs> it is. No, it is. It is. And and again, you know, I've been doing it for so long that I, I you know, I can carve out this time in this place and 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 get the and get the writing done. So I'm, yeah, I'm trying, trying. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, we can't <laughs> wait for whatever you have uh, up your sleeve for us next but thank you so much for coming onto the show oh it's been fun and thank you so much for having me oh dear here we are the time has arrived for all the m's again midlife milestones and magic moments i am loving these i have to say yes. i often listen to them a couple of times just to spur me on now this is the part of the show in which one of our listeners calls in to share their short story of a midlife epiphany this is a little bit of inspiration for you all we hope you may need a nudge to change or simply want to hear about how other midlife women are making the most of their wonderful second acts and dialing in this week we have Anise. Hey postcards from midlife. My name is Anise Eden. I just turned 50 and I live in Ireland. I've had three major midlife milestones. The first was having a hysterectomy after a 30-year battle with endometriosis. I've learned that many women experience feelings of loss with that surgery. I think there's an added dimension to that grief when you're childless like me. I don't believe grief ever really goes away, so for me it's been a process of learning to live and thrive alongside it and to accept it as part of who I am. My second milestone was becoming an expat at midlife, moving from the U.S. to Ireland to be closer to my husband's family. As a social worker in the U.S., I had been thinking about getting involved in academia. Much to my delight, after reaching our new home, those doors opened for me. I'm now doing a PhD and lecturing as well. Thanks to this opportunity, I've discovered a passion for teaching that I never knew I had, 
It's incredibly stimulating and rewarding and so much fun. The third milestone was becoming an author. That was a total surprise and something I'd never dreamed of doing, but I was struck hard by a wave of inspiration and just started writing. I was a bit shocked when my debut novel was picked up by an agent and then a publisher. And then coincidentally, it was released just a few months before my hysterectomy. I've now had four books published, and I believe that breathing life into this creative part of myself not only helped me cope with being childless, but also played a big part in a sort of general midlife renaissance. I wanted to share my story with other listeners just to show that even in challenging circumstances, midlife can be a time of self-discovery and exploration, forming new communities, and other exciting changes. I'm really looking forward to what comes next. Thank you so much. Here we are, Nostalgia Noodle. It's my mm-hmm. turn to ask you Ooh. which year I yes. have taken the TARDIS back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. It's a year of the dragon, Trish. That means nothing to me. Shall I tell you why I'm saying that? I'm trying to make it mathematical yes. because the Chinese calendar goes in 12 years and we're in the year of the tiger. Can you work it out? <laughs> <laughs> nice chance. Uh, so I'm going to start difficult. Yeah. And I'm going to kind of drop them in because okay. I think you'll get it pretty quickly once I drop one or two of these in. It was the final episode of the Peanuts cartoon. Oh. Loopy. Right. That's difficult. Yeah. It was... Goblet of Fire. We've been talking about Harry Potter. So oh. that was number four Ooh. in the series. Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt got married in this year. Ooh. Lovely Jennifer and Brad. Are you any how far are you? Are you well, anywhere near? I am in around I'm late 90s or early noughties. I think oops, early noughties. I did it again. It was number one for a very long time. In that case, I'm more mid-90s. You're getting colder, not not warmer here. (laughs) So Uh, Goblet of Fire book, not Goblet of Fire film. No, the book. The book. Oh, fine, fine. Okay, so okay. Okay, come on, come on. Oh, is that it? Do I have to guess now? No, No. all right then. Uh, Bill Gates left Microsoft this year to set Mm -hmm. up the foundation. No, that's not helping. I can see that's not helping. It's the year I got married, Trish. Does that help you more? Okay. I think it's uh, going to be 2000. You got it. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the world didn't end and the Millennium Dome was built. Oh, but, right. Uh... Okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't need those. I got it. It's a bit like Name That Tune. Do you remember that program? Yes. Where you just get ping, I'll name that tune in one. Ping. That's like Hurdle, like the Hurdle, which is the musical version of the Wordle, which I can oh. do the Hurdle, but I can't do the Wordle. You just I didn't get know a about the few... Hurdle. I think I'd be quite good at that. Yes, I think you would. Yeah. Uh, It's my copper, copper wedding anniversary this year. 22 years is copper. What do I want for a copper wedding Um, anniversary? What's my present? I just can't think. Copper piping, copper, copper, I don't know, roof. (laughs) I don't know. I think. Copper bath. That's quite glamorous and sexy for a wedding anniversary present. You're not really getting one of those, are you? No. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Postcards from Midlife. New episodes are available to listen to every Sunday on your podcast provider, and we'd really appreciate it if you can make sure to download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers. And if you can rate and review us too, that would be marvellous. And please tell your friends about us, because we want as many women as possible to join in this midlife conversation, which is what our private Facebook group is all about. So if you're not a member yet, do come over and join in the chat. You just have to answer three questions, as is quite standard on private Facebook groups. But please make sure you agree to the rules because otherwise we can't let you in and we want to let you in. No, can't have people in who don't agree to the rules, Trish Campbell. No, exactly. You know, I'm (laughs) rules and regulations, health and safety. Also, you can only come in if you send me snacks. (laughs) You can also use our private Facebook group to post any feedback on the topics we discuss, as well as suggest other things you would like us to talk about or celebrities and experts you would love to hear interviewed. Or you can email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or pop a little message on Instagram too. Goodbye. Goodbye.